Hello there. Welcome to the show. It has been quite a while since my last episode. I just finished my surgery rotation technically today because I took my shelf exam. Natalie is off visiting her family, so I am alone at home with nothing to do except not study. So I figured that I would do an episode potentially talking about some of the surgery topics that I have been working on and or learning. This is going to be a very sporadic episode. I don't have a particular order of things to go through. I have a big notebook that I've written some of the topics that I've had trouble with up, maybe talk about some of those things. Um, On a non-medical related area, I just finished uh, God of War the other day, so I would like to do a review with Nick about that because he finished it as well. I apologize for the popping noises. My cat is attacking my microphone. I also would like to spend a little bit more time playing God of War. Technically, I beat it, but they have there's some sort of an end game where you can go visit different worlds and sort of, I guess, fight for better gear. I'm not really sure. I haven't really played that far into it after I beat it, but I would like to look into that a little bit more before I do the whole review. But like every review that I've done, this game has been out for quite a while, so I don't think anyone's sitting there with their bated breath waiting to find out what I think about a game that's four or five years old. Since I did finish God of War, I have started Ghost of Tsushima, which is a somewhat new game. I don't think it's quite a year old. Reed gave it to me for Christmas, and I finally got around to starting it, which it's basically a samurai game, which I don't know that much about samurais other than they kill themselves if they dishonor themselves or something like that. I don't know if you can do that in this game. But um, from what I've played, it's really cool, and it's made by the same developers who made the Sly Cooper games, so Sucker Punch. So they made Sly Cooper games 1, 2, and 3. Then they moved on to do Infamous 1 and 2. I don't think they made Infamous Second Son. I think that was a different developer. And then now they've just finished Ghost of Tsushima. So far from the few hours that I have played, it is looking to be a really good game. So hopefully I will talk about that when I finish it in a year, because that's probably how long it's going to take me. So I just finished my surgery rotation, not my favorite rotation, not my least favorite rotation. I have to say the OB still holds the title of my least favorite rotation. Um, I had good residents and mostly good attendings on surgery. I only got yelled at once, and the time I did get yelled at, it kind of was my fault. But I had a mask on, so he probably won't recognize me if he ever sees me again, so I'm okay with that. The services that I was on were pink which is breast trauma nights which is trauma teal which is emergency medicine so if they have someone who has an appendectomy or emergent appendectomy or i guess an emergent cholecystitis or they need their bladder or gallbladder not their bladder removed their gallbladder removed i don't think people get their bladders removed very uh, frequently i think you can do that if you have bladder cancer but it has to be pretty severe bladder cancer i've never seen that but Um, Then I was on blue, which was sort of gastric uh, bypass surgery, robotic surgery, and cancer surgeries. And then I was on gold for two weeks, which gold was colorectal. So anything related to the GI tract, pretty much. Um, Again, a lot of robotic surgeries, a lot of colonoscopies. And then the last week I was on vascular. So it was funny because a attending or I think it was a resident sort of got on to me because I said that I hadn't been studying anatomy a ton since first year of medical school and they were like you're on your surgery rotation 
And while that is true, and I did definitely look at more anatomy because I was on my surgery rotation, nothing on the entire exam has anything to do with it. Okay, maybe a few things. There's some nerve things with the brachial plexus and the arm, and then some with the sacral plexus and the leg, and some you know, fractures, but mostly you're just studying medicine. There's not very much anatomy. It's not an anatomy test. They are like, you've already passed anatomy. So if you do go into surgery, I think that you'd spend a lot more time going over the anatomy of the specific surgeries that you're doing. Um, But that's also something that you get from doing a lot because anatomy is one of those things where you just know it or you don't. If you learn it, that's good, but you're probably going to forget it unless you're repeating that over and over again. So these surgeons who are constantly doing the same types of surgeries over and over again, like they have this anatomy nailed down because they're going in and they're seeing it and they're uh, operating on these this anatomy. And surgeons are also operating on all different types of areas. So you might have some that only do like colorectal surgeries. So they obviously they did a, a five-year residency in general surgery. So they had a pretty broad exposure to most different types of surgery but i think once they get out of their residency and if they do fellowships or if they just specialize in certain things that's when they really get a lot of this anatomy and physiology down because they're just operating on it all the time it's all they do and that's not to say i shouldn't be studying anatomy it's just the fact that i the brachial plexus just does not stick in my head i don't know what it is but it does not stick in my head Now, I would like to get some community involvement, and I say that as a joke because my community of listeners is very small, but if you do want a specific thing talked about or specific medical topic, not not saying that I'm you know, the expert on all things medical, because that is very, very far from the truth. I'm just saying that I could potentially read about it and tell you the five things that I learned about it, um, not in great detail, but if there is any sort of topics that my listeners, I say that also with extreme sarcasm because most of them is like family members and random people I ran into in Circle K. Like, you know, you buy a few cigarettes for someone and you're like, hey, would you check my podcast out and give me a good review on Apple reviews or whatever? You know, it happens all the time. So if there are any topics and specifics that you'd like to hear about, just let me know. And I don't have any way to reach me other than the fact that I'm pretty sure everyone who listens to my podcast has my phone number. Um, So that also shows you that I don't have that many listeners because if you know me, you know I'm not crazy popular. I mean, come on. I probably have like, what, seven or eight phone numbers? Probably seven or eight. I also should preface the fact that some of these topics I've probably talked about before, but I do get jumbled up with what I have spoken about. I don't have a list of everything. I guess I could go through and listen to every single episode and document which medical topics I have covered on a giant white piece of paper. I guess I could use a black piece of paper and use a white crayon, but... That might be a little unconventional, but um, so some of these topics I might cover, I've probably covered before, or some of the topics I've covered, it might be from a medicine or a more medicine approach, um, and this is kind of touching on it from the surgery end, but generally, there are a few big topics that I learned that I hadn't sort of touched on before when I was in my other rotations, just because this was specific to surgery, so the main one would probably be due to trauma, um, because your you know, general internal medicine doctor, even an ER doctor, doesn't deal with that much trauma. I, I guess it depends on the 
level of acuity of the hospital that you're working at. So the hospital that I'm at is a level one trauma center, which apparently that's like a big talking point. A lot of the people who interviewed at my school said that they brought that up a lot. Oh, it's a level one trauma center and blah, 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 which I didn't interview at this location. I interviewed at the location closer to Atlanta. So they didn't mention that to me. But level one trauma centers will get pretty much everything within you know a 200 mile radius if there aren't enough is if there isn't another level one trauma center located closer so when i was on the trauma uh rotation we got people from you know 100 miles out flown in on a helicopter stuff like that now obviously i wasn't performing that many delicate tasks uh, uh, my job was to cut the clothes off the patients i think i talked about this on one of my other podcasts but um The reason why I think it's a level one trauma center is just due to the different types of surgeons they have on standby. So if they have a um, vascular problem that they can call a vascular surgeon and he can come and do what's necessary. And if they have something wrong with the eye, they can call a optometrist, no ophthalmologist. No, they don't want to call an optometrist. He needs glasses. He's missing an eye. He might need some glasses. Um, An ophthalmologist, if they need to do some uh, extensive eye surgery, and so on and so forth. So I don't know what the exact categories are that make a hospital a level one trauma center, but uh, trauma is something that I had not dealt with until I started my surgery rotation. So one of the big things that you start with, and I think I might have talked about this before. I probably should go back and listen to my other episode, which was like two months ago um, before I go into this. But, you know, who cares? If you listen to this again and you're like, oh, my goodness, you're just repeating yourself. I'd be pretty proud of myself for being able to verbatim repeat what I had said in my last episode. I feel like that's showing off my really bad memory. Anyway, when you have a patient and this is more from like a problem aspect, like you're sitting for a test, not like Jimmy Bob is flying in and he's missing like all of his limbs. And you're like, what do you do? You know, obviously there's a lot more going on, but for a problem standpoint, you know, you get a patient, he was in a motor vehicle accident. Um, what are the things that you're really looking at? What are the things that you're assessing? So the big one is say he's had some sort of blunt abdominal trauma, someone beat him to death with a chair, or, you know, he got in a fist fight with a gorilla, you want to look at their blood pressure. If their blood pressure or the systolic blood pressure is below 90 or at 90, that's when you want to start worrying about them just dying, because that means that their volume is low. There's something wrong with their nervous system. They might be in some sort of shock. It could be cardiogenic shock. Probably not septic shock um, because generally you're going to see patients with septic shock when they've been in the hospital and they have an infection. Not always, but for problem's sake, that is something that we see more frequently. So you have a patient, they're in a car wreck. First thing you want to do or the first thing they'll give you is the criteria for the Glasgow Coma Scale. And by criteria, I mean they'll be like what their eye response is, if they're responding to you verbally, and if they have any sort of motor response. From a question standpoint, when you get a patient that has some sort of abdominal trauma, um, you want to get what's called a FAST exam, and that's just where you take a ultrasound and you look all around their abdomen for any signs of free fluid. So if they have um, free fluid, that could mean there's some sort of rupture, there's some sort of bleed that's going on, and we need to hemodynamically stabilize them, which consists of either stopping the bleeding or giving them fluids or giving them blood. It depends on the type of injury, um, which changes, you know, what what kind of fluids and things that you're going to give them. 
when I was on my pediatric rotation, I had a resident kind of give me the breakdown on fluids and what kind of fluids you should be giving and when. Um, and the, the main fluids you'll generally be giving, I mean, there's all types of fluids and there's all different reasons for giving them, but there's normal saline, um, which is 0.9 normal saline, which is the makeup of the saline that you're giving them, which is like water with sodium chloride in it. So there's different types of saline, which change the amount of tonicity. So the amount of saline or the percentage of saline in the water that you're giving. Um, there's also something that's called lactated ringers and lactated ringers. One is more expensive. And the reason why it's more expensive is that it's more closely attuned to have all of the electrolytes that your body has in it. So normal saline is just water with saline, uh, sodium chloride, whereas the lactated ringers has potassium, bicarb, and um, chlorine, and all those other things that we have floating around in our blood. And it is somewhat, you know, to help stabilize the patient a little bit more. But what this pediatric resident told me was, if it's any other service besides surgery, you're going to give normal saline. If it's if you're just giving fluids or giving maintenance fluids. If it's surgery, you're going to give lactated ringers. He says, I don't know why surgery, they always give lactated ringers. That's just what they do. I don't think that's like across the board. You can say that for everyone, but generally that's what you'll see is you're going to see surgeons. And I don't, I can't speak to why they do this or if that's actually true. But from what I saw, it does seem like you're going to see more surgeons give the lactated ringers than just like your average medicine. Maybe it's because generally it might be in a more acute situation whereas like in the hospital if you have a patient who's a little bit dehydrated and they come in and they have some issues you know you don't have to spend the extra money to give them the lactated ringers you could just give them the normal saline and it'll probably f do the same thing it's not going to be that much of a difference but i don't know i'm not an expert on this at all that's just what i was told so the algorithm for blunt abdominal trauma is you have the patient are they hemodynamically unstable or stable so unstable would be systolic blood pressure under 90 and hemodynamically stable would be blood pressure or systolic blood pressure over 90. Then you go to, do they have peritonitis? So that's going to, are you checking their abdomen? And if their abdomen is rigid or firm, uh, that means that they have peritonitis. And if there's guarding or when you push on their belly and they sort of flinch away from you, or um, do they have uh, rebound tenderness when you push down on their belly and release, do they flinch or does that hurt even more? So if they have peritonitis, then you go, so they're hemodynamically unstable, so their blood pressure is low and they have peritonitis, you go do a laparotomy. So a laparotomy is basically you cut them open and you look to find the problem. Pretty simple. I didn't see any laparotomies on trauma. I saw an exploratory laparotomy on a patient who had a small bowel obstruction when I was on, um, I think it was emergency medicine. The patient had been admitted a few days earlier and they were trying to treat her small bowel obstruction um, medically without having to do surgery and a few days had gone on and she hadn't improved so they're like i think we need to do this uh, laparotomy which is a pretty big procedure i mean they cut open your belly and they basically pull out your small intestines and they look around to see hey do we have a kink in the hose somewhere and if they do then they fix it or if there's some sort of ischemia that can they um help uh reperfuse that area so that they don't have to take out that part of the intestines so if the patient does not have peritonitis so they're hemodynamically unstable their blood pressure is low they do not have peritonitis then you go and do the fast exam with the ultrasound you're looking for free fluid if they do have free fluid then you go to the laparotomy you cut them open and say how do we fix this what's going on here um 
And if you don't have any free fluid, then you go just do a CT scan. So when I was on trauma, everyone got a CT scan. Anyone, some guy who ran into the wall and fell into the ground and said that he was in so much pain and he called the 911, we still had to do a CT on him. And one guy we had, uh, he had had like 30 CTs in the last, I don't know, it wasn't very long, like six months. And that's not good because the more CTs you have, there's a certain number that if you get, you're at risk for getting cancer just due to the amount of radiation that you're getting. So, you know, would not recommend getting a billion CT scans if you don't, if you have the option not to. All right. So if the patient is hemodynamically stable, their blood pressure is A-OK, but they have peritonitis, you still do a laparotomy. You cut them open and say, what's the problem? Can we find it? And if they don't have peritonitis, then you look at the free fluid with the fast exam. Is there any free fluid? Is there something floating around? Did something get blown up when they got hit by that baseball bat or that gorilla grabbed them and threw them against the wall? Um, and if they do have free fluid, then you do a CT because they're hemodynamically stable. So it's like, we don't have to do a laparotomy right now because they seem to be doing fine. They might not be losing that much blood or they're not losing that much fluid. Um, and if there is there no fluid, then you also do a CT. <laughs> so pretty much anyone who has blunt abdominal trauma, you're going to do a CT or a laparotomy. All the patients that I saw in trauma, they just had uh, CT scans, um, mainly because I don't think any of the ones I saw had any sort of direct trauma to their abdomen. Um, I, I had heard about a few patients when we were on uh, like lectures and stuff about patients who had been shot and their insides had just been torn up and they basically just have to go in there and fish around and try to put everything together. So that definitely happens, just didn't happen the two weeks that I was on trauma. I also have to clarify that not everyone who calls 911 or gets taken to the ambulance is a trauma, obviously. They have very specific criteria. One of the criteria that they have is if it's a fall on blood thinners, so if it's an older patient who's taking some blood thinners, say they have AFib, um, and they fall down, they're at a greater risk for bleeding, they're at a greater risk for a subdural hematoma or a... Um, what's it called arachnoid hemorrhage just due to the fact that they don't have the good ability to clot due to the medication that they're on so we saw a lot of those older people who had fallen down uh, really bruised beat up they really pro most of the time they were okay but you know they just look really bad because they bruise super easily but that is a criteria for a trauma and another one is what's called the seat belt sign so um if you've ever been in a bad car wreck and you're wearing your seatbelt, hopefully. If you're not wearing your seatbelt and it was a really bad car wreck, then you're going to be flying across the highway, which we saw plenty of those. I mean, obviously, we didn't see them fly across the highway, but we got them after they had flown across the highway. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was funny. I was thinking about back when I was 17, I got in a bad car wreck, and I, I definitely had a seatbelt sign. I also was bleeding profusely from the head, and I also knew that the um, I didn't know the exact price, but I did figure out here at Memorial that if you are a trauma, it's an automatic $20,000 charge. Um, and then that doesn't even count all the other um, things that you have because, you know, it's a lot of a lot of people springing into action to run one of these traumas. I mean, it's a big deal and you sort of get priority for most scans and things like that. So it's a big deal. 
But when I was 17, I remember hearing a story about a friend who had ridden in an ambulance and the bill was just absolutely crazy. So I was bleeding from the head and uh, my car was absolutely destroyed. And I was like, I will not get in that ambulance. I cannot, if you know, I wreck my car, I cannot have a giant bill attached to this. So I fought with the EMTs and I didn't really fight with them. I picked one of them up and threw him against the wall. No, I was just like, no, nah, I think I'm good. You know, I don't need to go. But technically, um, based on the fact that I know I had a seatbelt sign because I remember I had uh, scars around my my hips from where the you know seatbelt had caught me and I definitely had one on my shoulder I also had like things oozing from my face from the airbag and my head was all bleeding but I was like I'm not getting into this ambulance because I know how much it costs um, and that's something that we don't really consider as just you know you watch tv you experience things that happen you just call the ambulance and you know it's a it's a big deal to call the ambulance i mean uh, you it's a lot of money and it, unless you absolutely are just dying you probably should get someone to drive you to the hospital because it is really expensive now i also have to clarify everything that i'm saying with the fact that i am not a doctor i am just a medical student and anything that i talk about on this show you cannot use as medical advice i know everyone knows that and i feel like my sarcastic tone is a good way to preface the fact that you shouldn't be like oh no i listened to this random idiot online and he told me not to do this i mean i know people listen to people who are a lot less qualified than me which is surprising because i don't feel that qualified yet but there are generally people out there who are not qualified at all like they read you know some book about how you know if you breathe through your eyes it's like better for your circulation so you probably don't need to take that medication for your chronic kidney disease whatever but just to say you know if if you feel like you need to call the ambulance don't be like well that one random guy said you know you're missing both of your arms you know you're cut in half um and you're like you know but it's going to be really expensive so i probably should have someone put me in a paper bag and you know drive me to the hospital i guess a paper bag wouldn't work really well maybe a garbage bag yeah put me in a garbage bag and drive me to the hospital probably wouldn't work the best Anyway, back to what I was talking about, though I did learn, and this is something very interesting because people get shanked all the time in TV shows and in real life, getting shanked is very different. Now, okay, I haven't experienced being shanked, but I have helped sew up some people who have been shanked and it's it's not as intense. I did see one that was very intense, but I think that was a very specific situation because out of the eight or nine shankings I saw, there was only one really intense one. So in the movies, you know, people are getting shanked left and right, and the shiv is going all the way through them, through their back, you know, cutting them in half and all this stuff. Really, it's like when you get shanked, it's like you got attacked by a really angry porcupine, or you got attacked by your mother-in-law holding a really big spatula. Like, the shanks tend to hit and bounce off, because... They're probably not very sharp because they're made out of not metal most of the time. And so what they end up just doing is um, almost creating sort of indentations or like taking out chunks of skin when they hit, especially if they hit the head. Um, I think that you're more likely to get some sort of skull fracture um, than you are to get a big slice with a uh, shank just because of the force of that object hitting your head and it's a small point so there's a lot of force directed at that one place um, but people who had been shanked in the arms legs thighs ears nose mouth um, it was more like a bunch of small cuts but maybe I just had a it was a it was a good week for shanking and more shanks are like they have a shank sticking through their stomach I mean I'm sure I know that happens but 
generally, I was surprised to see that people who had been shanked, it was generally more of small cuts just kind of covered all over them. Um, not necessarily these big giant, you know, like you got attacked by a samurai and he stabbed you with his katana. I took a lot of things away from my uh, trauma rotation, my trauma weeks. I think those were probably some of the most hands-on learning that I've ever done. I sewed up a lot of people. I hadn't really done that before. Um, I'd done a few um, in OB surgery, like sewing up the laparoscopic holes after the surgery was over. But um, this time I actually got to help, you know, clean up wounds, um, sew up cuts. And uh, humans are pretty hard to kill. I mean, you know, you can get shot several times and, and you're still going. We had a guy who got shot in the leg uh, and he was fine. I mean, like, sure, he was in pain, but... We had a guy come in with his leg cut off or his leg had been ripped off by a, a motorcycle accident. And, you know, he was on pain meds, but we wrapped his foot up and we stuck him in a room and we said, you know, we'll wait till the surgeon gets here. The I think it was the vascular surgeon that uh, was going to because they deal a lot with amputations. So, you know, humans are pretty resilient, especially if you have other humans that are looking after you. But you can you can take a you can take a beating so next time you you're about to get into a bar fight just remember you know one there are good doctors out there who are willing to help you um or who just will help you because they'll be on call and two you know you, you can take a lot more than you might think it's not like the movies you know one punch doesn't knock someone over one sword blow through the spine doesn't kill you well okay that probably would kill you but um i just was surprised by the resilience of the human body one of the things that um, I always find funny or interesting now that I've learned a little bit more about trauma and um, just accidents in general is in, in movies and TV shows. And, and the reason why I compare this to movies and TV shows is because most people are not involved in shankings, your average person. Um, most people are not, you know, attacked by a katana wielding samurai. Um, but in TV shows, that happens all the time. And in TV shows, people get cut and sliced and stabbed all the time. And they never, ever, ever have nerve damage from those attacks. There are so many nerves in your arm that if you got sliced with a sword or if you got cut in a certain way, I mean, you could permanently affect the movement of your hand just because a nerve was severed. And, you know, they can tie them together, but nerves are tricky and they don't really grow back well after they've been cut. Um, so that's one of the things that, you know, in TV shows, people are getting stabbed and cut and slashed and chopped and shot. And, and they rarely have, if they get better, you know, if they don't die, if they just get better, then they're back to 100% normal. Whereas in real life, you know, you have a lot more deficits after you've been attacked by a ninja. Like you're going to have some issues with either with uh, sensation or with slight movement or just dexterity. Um, so just, you know. Keep that in mind when you decide to become a vigilante. I have definitely gone off on lots of tangents on this episode. I didn't really think I was going to be focusing so much on trauma. There's not a lot of specific medical details that I've given, just things that I've learned. Um, I would say that I have learned four, four keys to uh, not being a trauma patient um, on my time. So the first one would be don't go to prison. That is a uh, good place to start. Um, you know, if you can avoid it, don't go to prison. Uh, second thing is don't drink and drive for multiple reasons. Um, the main one being that you can kill other people for your dumb mistakes. But the, the other reason being that um, 
you're going to get in more wrecks and therefore you're going to be more likely to be a trauma patient. Um, the third thing is don't drive motorcycles. Now, you know, motorcycles are fun. You can do cool things in motorcycles like do wheelies and show off to your friends how fast your motorcycle is. But, you know, if you wreck on a motorcycle, it's it's bad news. And, you know, if you get hit by a car, it's even worse news. And if you wreck, get hit by a car and are drunk while you're in prison on a motorcycle, then, you know, you're just, you're doomed. And then the fourth thing is don't do drugs because drugs are similar to alcohol. Okay, you know what? That's kind of a, a life goal in general. Don't do drugs. Just, you know, that's what they say. Isn't that what Smokey the Bear says? Like, Smokey the Bear says, don't do drugs. And then his other brothers, like, you know, kill communists or something like that. I forget what Smokey the Bear's brother does. I think he's like an anti-communist guy, which I'm down with that. Um, and yes, for clarification, I do know that Smokey the Bear is for preventing forest fires. But, you know, just so everyone else out there doesn't think I'm an absolute idiot. Uh, that was a joke. So needless to say... Um, I would say that surgery and OB have been very interesting rotations because there's a lot of hands-on. Um, you do you learn a lot of practical things. As much as I disliked OB, I learned a lot of practical things because I think most people I know were born. I think most, yeah, most people I know were born. So you know, it's something that everyone gets to experience at some point in their life, whether or not it's when they are born or when they're borning someone else. Um, and surgery, you know, a lot of people get surgery. A lot of people have problems. A lot of people get in car wrecks. A lot of people have cuts. A lot of people, which, you know, small lacerations and things like that is going to be more emergency medicine. But, you know, I dealt with a little bit of that on trauma. Um, but, you know, people are going to have to have their gallbladders removed. People are going to, you know, have issues with their GI tracts. And they're going to have to have parts of their intestines taken out. And it's a very practical field. And I think that's what people do like about surgery. It's hands-on. Um, you do cool stuff. Um, you really feel like you're doing something. Someone has some pain, which this doesn't always the case, but you know, with you know, gallbladders, you have a lot of pain when you eat, go and take the gallbladder out. That pain is generally gone. I mean, they're still going to have pain from the surgery, but that gets better. Um, so surgery is a cool field, especially if you like doing things. I was not a fan. I did not like the OR, did not like scrubbing in my best favorite thing about going and watching a surgery and them not asking me to scrub in was the fact that if they wanted me to do anything, I literally can't because I'm not scrubbed in. They can't make me do something because I'm not sterile. So uh, it's just, there are a lot of people that like it. I'm glad there are people out there who do like surgery, but that is not for me. Um, so my next rotation is family medicine, which is kind of a, you get a lot of everything. You get a lot of internal medicine. You get a little bit of OB. You get some pediatrics as well. Um, I think depending on where you are, you'd get a fair amount of emergency medicine, but I'm pretty sure in our rotation, it's mostly going to be internal. Um, and then with a smattering of, um, OB and a smattering of peds as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a little bit more relaxed than surgery. We won't just have to spend as much time um, there, which, you know, that's good and bad. You get to study, you get to experience more, but at the same time, it's like studying at this point in time is very important for us because we're still learning. And a lot of the doctors, at least on surgery, were not good at teaching. They, they didn't even acknowledge us. They never 
you know, they have a job to do. They have stuff going on. They have residents to teach as well. And the residents are busy running around with their heads cut off. So yeah, like I totally understand. I'm not saying like if I was in a surgery rotation, I'd be the best teacher, but it's just hard to learn when you're there, especially on surgery, because the people who are over you are very stressed a lot of the time and they have stuff to do. So they're not going to sit down and give you a little chat. Um, but there are a lot of different things I want to talk about on my show. Um, I have covered a lot of medicine recently. Monster Hunter came out a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. Man, it's been like a couple months. It's actually been two months. Can't believe that. I have put in a fair amount of time. I don't know how, but uh, definitely want to do a review on that. Um, I am reading the first book in the Rogue Squadron series with... Um, Wedge Antilles from Star Wars and like about how the New Republic is being created and they're fighting off the Empire. So when I finish that, I might talk a little bit about that. I have the first two, so maybe I'll read both of those and talk about those and whether or not you should read them. Old Star Wars is super interesting, especially the books, because they haven't built off the prequels yet. So at this point in time, we haven't seen Coruscant. Coruscant has not been in the movies, which I, I just think that's the coolest thing ever. So we talk about Coruscant, we know about Coruscant, but we actually haven't been there in seen it like we have in the movies so it's fascinating to read about this stuff and about what people thought it was going to be like too bad disney came and ruined everything but you know that seems to be disney's theme nowadays they kind of come in run in ruin everything support communism man i've been really going on about communism today you know just don't do communism communism is like drugs just don't do it um i think the last time communism was implemented it killed around 50 million people um that might be more than diabetes i'm not sure i'd have to check the numbers it probably isn't as much as diabetes but uh diabetes is it's a tricky one um so the first time it was or the last time i think it was probably china with the 50 million and then the uh um Soviet Russia with around 30 million. I am working through uh, the Gulag Archipelago, but you know, I am in school and that book is like a school book. So it'll be quite a while before I finish that. It might take me throughout my residency to finish that book. Well, that's it for this episode. If you have any specific topics, whether or not it's uh, medical or about um, NASCAR, which I think I did an episode on NASCAR, or if it's based on a book, video game, movie, and I've seen it, or I'll go out and watch it, though going out and watching is not something that I typically do just because, you know, it costs a lot of money to go to the movies. Blairsville, it's really nice because it's like $6. I wonder if they've raised the price, but when, you know, Back when I was in college, you know, it'd be like 15, 20 bucks to go in Chattanooga. But when you go back to Blairsville, it's like $6. It costs a whole extra dollar to do 3D. If there are any topics you want me to talk about, just shoot me a text and I'll potentially do it. I'm not going to make any promises because I've been really bad with uploading podcasts recently. So thanks for listening. 